All right, Forge family, by now, um, as we've studied through the New Covenant ministry passages in 2 Corinthians together, we know that Paul likes to summarize. So three times he sort of stopped and looked back, and we've done that too. And as we look back at what the Lord the Spirit had been laying out for the Corinthians, it's for us as well. And all those things he taught laid a platform for a ministry uh, for the Corinthians and for us. It's the ministry of reconciliation. We are agents of God who, by Holy Spirit, bring lost people into some kind of relationship, uh, close relationship with Jesus, so that they get a sense of, oh, that's the message. You know, the blood of Christ paid for all my sins, and God has already made a way back to be at peace with him. <clears throat> that has to come through the shed blood of, of Jesus. Now, we carry that great good news with God that God in Christ has removed that sin. It's as if uh, each man, each woman has had a credit placed to their account, if you will, and that credit simply says that their sin is no longer an issue. <clears throat> what matters is what each man and each woman does and uh, does with Jesus and, and his claims that he lived a pure life, he was crucified, he died, he was raised to life, ascended to the Father, and sits at the right hand of God. So the question is, um, since he chose to lay down his innocent blood for each man and woman, he's waiting for the response. Will they choose to say yes to him, or will they choose to turn away and pursue darkness? We've been given a powerful word that fills us with joy, a word that wipes away fear and any sense of limitation. Now, Paul extended the mantle of an ambassador of Christ to us, and we're charged then to speak out with God's passion and invitation to mankind, to anybody, to, to those that come along, that we have these, in, these divine encounters with. And we, we have the opportunity to invite them to come face to face uh, with God's presentation to them. <clears throat> now, nothing but the blood of Jesus shed for them will suffice to make a way into, into the Father's presence. That message is all about God. It's not about us. We just get to show up and deliver and open the door for the kingdom and then stand back and watch what Holy Spirit does. So let's pray. Lord God of the resurrection, the rising to life from the grave of Jesus offered proofs of who Jesus really was. We too have been raised to a new life in him. And that also sets before the watching world the kingdom ways of living life with him. That also sets before all of us the opportunity so that our, our actions, our words, our thoughts, and our attitudes mirror kingdom reality. Lord, that is where we need Holy Spirit as we learn to demonstrate the love of God in Christ. Get us ready for those divine encounters with those who have had their hearts prepared already. In Jesus' name, amen. So, back in here to this 2 Corinthians text, open to chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. This is the start of a 10-verse sentence. Paul does that. He'll put in semicolons. And, excuse me. Well, we don't really know. Excuse me. You know, all, all the best manuscripts we have remaining, and we have 5,000 complete manuscripts of the New Testament, you know, they, they're all in capital letters in Greek. There's no break, word break 
and there's no punctuation. So if you're going to take it apart and parse it and, and create sentences, you have to decide, oh, it's that word, and then there's a space in that word, and oh, we got to put punctuation here, etc. That's that's our the responsibility of translation committees and editor editors. But they also manage to break it up into chunks that sometimes don't make any sense from the text. God bless them. So Paul is writing to the Corinthian ecclesias, to the gatherings, to the churches, to those that are infused with the authority of Jesus. <clears throat> and he knows that many of the new believers there are not solidly yet fixed on Christ. They've come for the fellowship, for the food, for the community support. Sometimes they, they have a little help so that they can live and they can eat. And the laying on of hands, some of them have been healed, but they still have not grasped that they are new creations in Christ. So I confess that last sentence has nowhere in the scriptures. It's in biblical history, but it is not in the scriptures. That was me. That's a Pattersonism. Okay, just so you know. But Jan and I saw that pattern when we ministered during the Jesus movement 40 plus years ago, where people would come and, and they would be part of these groups that we had. And uh, they proclaimed that they were new converts in Christ. There was hot, great, high, great expectation during that time. Wonderful things happened. But as that season quieted and cooled after four or five years, uh, it was really apparent that some of those folks who had been with us weren't there anymore. They were back with drugs. They were back with a lifestyle that they had left previously. They were there, had been there for surface reasons, not for the heart. Now Paul wrote, and uh, working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listen to you, and by the and excuse me, and on the day of salvation I I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So Paul's quoting here out of Isaiah's passage of an Isaiah passage. It's chapter 49, verse 8. And it's it is a state, a place in time when salvation has extended itself to the ends of the earth, out to the islands of the earth. <clears throat> and it's proclamation from proclamation from God Himself that He heard the cries from mankind across the earth, and on that day He listened carefully and acted on their behalf. Now, Paul illumines that Isaiah 49, verse 8 passage and twice uses the phrase, uses the word, behold, okay, which means something amazing, something that's going to be sudden is about to happen. Quote, now is the day of salvation. Now, Paul's urging all the believers to not let this so great salvation slip away. He warns them to not receive the grace of God in vain, in emptiness. It, with no purpose, in an offhand, lackadaisical way. Okay, this is not a spiritual cafeteria that you walk through and put a little of this and a little of that on your plate, and then you go and sit down and you kind of go, ooh, this is good, and ooh, I shouldn't have chosen that, and you, you just leave it behind and walk out. Okay, this is not, this is not a, um, a salvation in Christ that was a, a brush contact that, with spirituality for the here and now. The opening line says that Paul and his missions team were working together with God to see the grace of God downloaded, installed, and set in the root file of life so that the grace would, would lead the Corinthians and us forward into eternity, all in due course. Now, note that Isaiah quote is a, par is a parenthesis. You know, it'll be marked out some, in some fashion in your text. Okay? And, and then Paul picks it up again and he says, and 
continues with the work that God is, is in charge uh, uh, with us. He works with us. And what does that look like? It looks like holiness. So, giving no cause of offense to anyone or anything, in anything, in order that the ministry be not discredited. Now, there's a target for all of us. Okay? The controlling verb is one that speaks of followers of Paul. You know, they come to Christ in Corinth, but they might strike their foot against a stone or a rock, causing them to stumble. The, the Greek word used by Paul is proskope, and it's used only here in the text. Paul's wording says, we would never allow that. His, he and his team were, were ball hawking. They were all over this kind of thing, of the language and the postures and things like that in those fellowships, so that there wouldn't be any blot on their ministry. They didn't want anybody to stumble over their teaching or over their practice. Now, I admit, as I've traveled the world for ministry, I've run headlong into Christian communities that have set their boundaries such that, for example, how one dresses is a, a super important. Every one of my sisters here would be out of compliance. Those folks want the, the top button tight up high in the middle of the throat. Almost no, you know, down to the wrists, down to the ankles for the ladies. Okay? Still happening in some of those communities. Okay, but then you pass on to the Romani Christian communities in Argentina. Okay? Some of us would say gypsy communities, but they love Jesus. But the girls who are of marriageable age wear these flowing flamboyant dresses with plunging necklines that come close to the navel. And you're kind of walking and go, oh my, oh gosh, you know, <laughs> look at the floor, Dick. You know, it's like, <laughs> all right. <clears throat> in Ireland, I've sat with godly leaders who have an alcoholic beverage on the table four times a day. And that's normal. And I've sat with African pastors that where that would have been forbidden, absolutely forbidden. The point is not to look on outward appearance or on practices, but to inner life that's holy, whole before the Lord, and to let him define your freedoms and boundaries. The Lord himself wants no one to stumble and turn away from Christ over externals. Paul worked at being all things to all people, and he labored to avoid being a stumbling block in anyone's path over those simple external issues. Now, as a new leader, gosh, 40 you know, maybe a little less than 40 years ago, I was invited to go with one of my mentors to a uh, teaching assignment he had. He was going to teach chapels and le- uh, night evening lectures in a small Bible college on the remote Oregon coast. And we arrived there in wintertime, and there were no tourists. Many of the storefronts were closed. Some of the stores were only open on Saturdays, maybe, maybe Sundays, okay? And so after the first morning chapel service there wasn't anything for us to do there's no place to go shopping so we we wandered out on this beach and they had these big sea stacks you know that had been cut by the waves and things like that so we decided we're going to walk out there and get up on that sea stack well we were trying to do hop from rock to rock and stone to stone but we realized the tide is coming in and we had to turn around and hustle we got wet we never we didn't make it back dry we got wet so we went back to the rooms and wrung out our stuff and washed off the sand and put on new dry clothes. And then we went to lunch. Lunch was cheeseburgers and beer. 
and then we we stayed and they had a pool table so the three of us shot pool that night after the lecture was finished by my mentor I got cornered by one of the students who said what did you do with your day and I went well we tried to get out to the sea stack and we got kind of wet on that and then we went to add lunch and we stayed and we shot some pool and he was appalled he was just shocked to his socks I had been in the devil's den as far as he was concerned I mean, bad things were ha- happened in that in that place. Now, did he did I cause him to stumble? No, okay, but there may have been a blot placed against my mentor's ministry. It was a hard lesson to learn. <clears throat> so on into verses four and five, it says, "But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance." In afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. Okay, we'll stop there. Okay. Many commentators put big emphasis on the word endurance because that is kind of the theme that runs down through that page, through the verses. Okay. Now, uh, in the Greek text, as I mentioned, you have to figure out where you're going to put your punctuation. So it's possible to read this sentence says, but in everything commending ourselves as servants to God in much endurance without the comma, okay? So what follows are three sets of three personal events in Paul's life, all of which had been endured. The first trio is afflictions in hardships and in distresses. So we've seen that word afflictions before. It's the word Greek word flipsis and it can mean blows, <clears throat> sorrows, burdens, and disappointments. Hardships can also be translated calamities or near disasters. And distresses speak of tight places and anguish. That first trio of pressures that Paul had endured are drawn from his ministry journeys and personal experience. Paul lays out the route of his apostleship by reviewing what he'd been through and had endured. This trio speaks of general suffering. The second trio is beatings, imprisonments, and tumults. So um, the suffering here that Paul uh, was going to endure came at the hands of others. Five times, he claimed, he had been beaten by the Jews with 39 lashes. Now, there are... There's every opportunity when you're beaten with lashes that you will not recover. You will get an infection that will take your life. And somehow he had recovered and and been beaten and recovered, you know, five times. Five times. Then it says in the text three times he was beaten with rods. Almost the same result. Maybe a little more bruising than skin breaking. But it's bad news. I mean, you really are going to take a while to recover from that. And you might not recover from that. That's followed by uh, Paul and Silas. They, they were beaten first, and they were tossed into the prison in Philippi. <clears throat> he was also imprisoned or taken into custody in Jerusalem. He was lifted out of a riot and set into the Roman into Roman custody, and then transferred down to be in custody in Caesarea. And then, when he appealed to Caesar, he went to Rome and was imprisoned. He was released from prison for a short period of time, and then he was under house arrest. Some of the early church fathers have a list that's longer than that. that is not, the list is not included in the text of Scripture, but they think Paul was imprisoned more times than are here. And then as to the tumults, that speaks of 
of uh, messy politics and, and riots, if you will, in Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Ephesus, and Jerusalem. So that's eight riots in six chapters of the book of Acts. <laughs> Paul showed up and, and, and people hated what he was doing and it turned into a street riot. Okay? Now once Paul was stoned and he was left for dead, yet he still stands. Now, there's a man named George Fox. Do you recognize his name? University? Well, yeah, there is a, a university. George Fox was the founder and leader of the Quakers in England. <clears throat> okay, And he writes about his experience of what happened to him in Tickhill, one of the towns in, in England. He said, I found the priest and most of the chief of the parish together in the chancel. So he's in church. He's in a church building. Okay, So I went up to them and began to speak, and immediately they fell upon me. The clerk took up the Bible as I was speaking and struck me on the face with it so that it gushed out with blood. And I bled exceedingly in the steeple house. Then the people cried, let us have him out of the church. And when they got me out, they beat me exceedingly and threw me down and over a hedge. And afterwards, they dragged me through a house into the street, stoning and beating me as they drew me along so that I was besmeared all over with blood and dirt. Yet, when I had got upon my legs again, I declared to them the word of life and showed them the fruit of their teachers and how they dishonored Christianity. <laughs> William Barclay is a commentator I've read a lot of over the years. And, and Barclay followed that quote with, the mob has often been the enemy of Christianity. But nowadays, it is not the violence, but the mockery or the amused contempt of the crowd against which Christians must stand fast. The third trio in this list is in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. So this qualifies as troubles that Paul chose for himself. He repeatedly labored to exhaustion. He sacrificed sleep so that new believers could receive sound teaching into the early morning hours. Paul suffered insomnia in his concern for the churches. Another way to speak of hunger is to think of all the references in Paul's writings about fastings. Self-discipline comes with suffering. He was all in to focus himself on what God had for him, even if it challenged his body. Paul rightly can say that it was through much endurance that he could write to Corinth's ecclesias and commend his ways to them. It was through patient endurance, through grit, through guts, if you will, our 21st century term, okay, meaning fortitude and long-standing persistence under persecution. Paul's opponents looked at this list and said, those sufferings disqualify you as an apostle. Paul's response was, Jesus is worth it all. His gospel is true. So let's pick it up again in verses 6 to 7a. Okay, I don't think I've ever mentioned this. Sometimes editors and commentators, they divide verses into A, B, C, and D. So A is just a simple way of saying partway through verse 7, there's a shift. Okay, and we'll get to that point. So Paul begins to describe here how he's been carried forward in ministry. In purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God. Now, all of these are introduced with the word in. 
as the previous nine sufferings had been listed. He, they were, you know, he had suffered with that word in in front of each of those sufferings. Now Paul turns away from sufferings to his resources, a series of spirit-supplied graces upon which he had drawn in the midst of suffering. And he begins with purity, which speaks of his conduct without guilt. And it would be even possible to say of Paul, he labored into his holiness to stand before the Lord and to stand before the Corinthians. The next word is knowledge, but it can be better translated understanding. See, Paul's knowledge goes beyond the circumstances to insights that the Lord about, from the Lord about what really counted in, in that encounter, what was going on. He didn't just kind of go, oh, look at that, it's a riot. You know, in his mind, he would say, oh, now I know what to do with that. You know, I, do I stand? Do I flee? Do I get on? You know, do I? He knew, you know, the Lord helped guide him through that, that knowledge. Okay? Patience and kindness were supposed have supported Paul through attacks on him personally and have clarified his mind in dealing with churches. The appearance of Holy Spirit in the middle of a list of ethical listings really needs to get unwrapped here. Across the New Testament, there are references to, for example, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, along with knowledge, endurance, kindness, love, and the list of gifts of the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? Um, and, And gifts by Holy Spirit. Paul is engaged in Holy Spirit ministry. Paul continues with genuine love. He means no phony agape love. Oh, brother, you are so good. While you're thinking something else and intending something else in your mind. Okay? The love that Paul displays and draws on, which is God's love for him, is the real deal. The phrase, in the word of truth, can also be translated in truthful speech. The contrast is all that is not true, which also includes flattery. When Paul had to step up and correct behaviors and and speech in other believers, he didn't tiptoe around that. Paul finishes this brief section with, in the power of God. And it's a reference to the all-surpassing, all-encompassing power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in his first letter to the Corinthians, says it like this. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now, the previous 15 reflections here begin with the word in, and speak of them being personal to to Paul. Now, in the middle of verse 7, there's a shift to the introduction of each following in each following phrase to the word by which can be taken as that which is done to Paul supplied to Paul which he receives now look at the rest of verse 7 and then part of verse 8 by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left by glory and dishonor by evil report and good report so with the graces flowing from holy spirit Paul can stand equipped with the weapons of righteousness. Now those would be speaking only the truth, prayer, personal integrity, humility, gentleness, goodness, knowing without a doubt that what it was knowing without a doubt what it was for him 
that God had laid out ahead of him, that he was to be striving for. See, that gave Paul a resolve from God to go forward. Historically, the right hand held the offensive weapons. Okay? That could have been a spear, a javelin, a dart, a sling, or a sword. And the left hand held the defensive devices. The shield, short axe, secondary sword, or a dagger. For Paul and for us, that would be the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and the shield of faith, which was used to quench the flaming darts of the evil one that come against us. The glory and dishonor accurately describe how Paul's ministry was viewed. The lovers of God gave glory to for Paul's gave glory to the Father for Paul's ministry. They they just went, yes, got it. The haters of God and his grace in Christ heaped dishonor and slander on the apostle. The latter resulted in an evil report that was sent along from city to city, following Paul through all the places that he had preached. There were new converts that were gathered, and here comes along this evil report. Oh, he's not an apostle. Oh, he's a sinner. Oh, you know, etc. Okay. The good report displayed the results of the preaching of Christ, which meant many new believers who had turned from idolatry to Jesus, their lives being transformed, their mouths and hearts filled with love for God, and their passionate evangelism to the lost around them. That's a good report. Okay, that report redounded to glory to God. I mean, it just pours out. God is glorified by that report. Paul demonstrated what I would call a holy balance, knowing when to move on, when to stand, when to resist, when to speak, when to be silent, you know, when to defend the ministry, and when to just step back and let God take care of all of that. Paul follows with the rest of verse 8 and on into verse 10 with seven pairs of opposites. They're antitheses. The first mention in each pair is a look at Paul in the natural through the eyes of his oppressors, his opposition, and perhaps the eyes of some still in the ecclesias in Corinth. And the second item listed then is God's own truth of the matter. So the text says, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. So looked at as deceivers, charlatans, imposters, but Paul and his team spoke the truth and did the truth. Looked upon as unknown, but intimately known and loved in the gatherings of believers. Looked upon as dying, as fading away, but with some amazement, Paul and his team live. Looked on as punished, beaten, imprisoned, but not put to death. Looked on, looked on as sorrowful, but always rejoicing in the triumph march of Christ. Looked on as poor, with few natural resources, but making others rich in faith in Christ. Looked on as impoverished, but having possession of all things. So, Forge family, I have homework for you this week. I want you to take the, um, 
the list of accreditations and experience of Paul the Apostle from verses 4 to 10. And kind of hold that up on one side and maybe take open another Bible and, and then read through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. There's an amazing correlation between what Paul suffered and experienced and called on and what happened to, to what Jesus says. This is how we're supposed to walk it out. There's a great grid through which we can examine our own life. How far we've come, how far yet we have to go. But ultimately, we're headed for heaven. And there is more beyond that. You know, there are vast riches of grace waiting for each of us as we journey in the Spirit. I'm grateful in these texts for the word us. In these chapters dealing with the New Covenant ministry. It is inclusive and sobering, and it points forward to joy and peace, and it promises strengthening of the Lord every day. Because we get to demonstrate holiness. So let's pray. Lord of the new covenant, ratified and set in place with your blood. We are trying to wrap our minds around all that Paul has taught here in these chapters of how to minister in that covenant. Thank you for sending Holy Spirit to walk alongside and interpret this word and to empower us as we choose to humble ourselves and obey. Thank you for the lists and the contrasts. We would soon find ourselves on the side of the Spirit, proclaiming the risen Christ. And we would do that in word and deed, Lord. Open to us our individual and corporate destiny. We would follow you closely, Lord, and obey you explicitly. In Jesus' name. We say together, come Holy Spirit. So repeat after me. Come Holy Spirit. Amen.